Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. And welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I hope you enjoyed our opening song called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Door. You can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. That's why we like to have an hour-long conversation with real people who are in it to win it. And that means those that are diagnosed, those that care and serve them, advocates, researchers, and more. This is a time for us to come together to really make a difference in the world. And I know we are doing that because your likes, your clicks, your shares have made a huge difference in terms of our footprint in the world. And that's that's because you care. You know more people need to hear real information about how to live with dignity and graciousness with dementia. So thank you for helping us build this sense of community. Now, before we get started and I introduce our guest today, who I'm just like thrilled to have on um, because she's a person living with dementia over in Australia, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. They, you know, they are gathering so much information for all of us to find memory cafes all around the world at this point. Though there are limited numbers because of COVID, there are virtual memory cafes that you can participate in. So go to the memorycafedirectory.com. And then also another great resource, especially because there's not much for respite out there, check out Coral Health. That's C-O-R-O, Coral Health. Dot com and you can download two of their apps for free. One is called Music First and the other is Coral Faith and they are both absolutely fantastic. And I always am encouraging people to, you know, join a trial if you can. And there's a trial out there called The Gain, G-A-I-N, The Gain Alzheimer's Trial. And it is for people between 55 and 80 who have mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease and also have a care partner who's willing to go to appointments with them, help with reporting and medications and so forth. Now, last, uh, I just want to hear from a group who has developed the Foot Bar Walker. And then I will introduce you to Sarah. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. 
the foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The foot bar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the foot bar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the foot bar walker. So, Sarah Ashton is our guest today, and she was diagnosed with early onset dementia at the age of 57. Now, at that time, she was working as the senior district manager for New South Wales Health, and that was in the Mid-North Coast. Now, her position responsibilities included district management of accreditation, risk management, consumer advocacy, and legislative compliance. So that's, that's a lot, a lot of job responsibility. Now, overnight, Sarah lost her job and most of her friends as the diagnosis of dementia became known. And so for the past few years, Sarah has been working as an advocate for Dementia Australia. She also sits on the board for the National Dementia Advisory Council. Sarah loves animals and shares her house with two dogs and five birds. And I can tell you right now, you're not going to be disappointed in this conversation. But let's start out with you telling us about what type of um, changes did you see in yourself as far as maybe behaviors or skill sets, or did others recognize changes were happening, you know, prior to your diagnosis? Laurie, there were a couple of things I would say is that I noticed that it took me longer at work. I was spending longer days at work because I seemed to have, you know, it was just taking me that much longer to do stuff. And then it was my mother who was 97 at the time, I've got to tell you, but she was absolutely alert and orientated. And she kept saying to me, Sarah, when I'm gone, because she was very ill at the time, you must go and see about your memory. And I would be, oh, come on, mum, give me a break. I'm looking after you. I'm working full time. Dysfunctional relatives, you know, it's all going on. A house to look after. No, there's something wrong. I'm 97. I've got a better memory than you. And she would this conversation would regularly happen. She'd have a go at me about my memory. And I, I sort of didn't, didn't take much notice of what she was saying. I, I put it down to a lot of stress, a lot of work. My job, as you would have recognised from the video, was quite a big job that I had to do. And I was a pretty busy woman with my work. And, and I didn't think much about it. I, it I, when I did my uh, neurocognitive testing the first time, which was long before my diagnosis, the uh, psychologist, Michael, he said, oh, you're 10% below where you should be for your age group, you know. You must be finding it difficult with work. And I just dismissed him entirely. And I said, oh, yeah, you know. And I... I I just didn't, I, I was putting 
overlaying other issues as the contributing factor to my signs. I, had, I did have friends after they become aware of my diagnosis who told me, oh yes, we saw problems, we just didn't say anything to you about it. But I didn't really see anything. I, I just, I associated it with other issues. And I was totally blindsided. If I had known, for example, that the fact that I have hydrocephalus, which is fluid on the brain, and I've had about nine or 10 neurosurgeries, would cause me to be more likely to develop it, which was the contributing factor to my initial diagnosis. I would have, I would have been very aware, I would have been watching, but no, I was pretty much blindsided by the diagnosis. And it wasn't until we went through the whole sequence of things and, um, oh, I don't know, I, I, somebody suggested I went and saw Dementia Australia up here at our local office, and I did. And I took my information because I think he knew he was a doctor and he said that he was now a parliamentarian and he said, look, go and see them. They might be able to give you memory exercises. I went and saw them and, and we went through all the information and just to set the scene, he handed me a piece of paper with the top folded down and he said, um, tell me what you think of the things on this list. And I went down them and I said, oh, yeah, they're all me. And there were 10 items all related to dementia. And he said, now I want you to open the top. And as I did, I could see the word symptoms of early onset dementia coming up. And like my brain just imploded. I don't know how I got out of the office. I think I breathed in and I forgot to breathe out for the day. He said, you've got to go back to your neurologist because he said, based on what I'm reading, I think you've got early onset dementia. He said, I'll be back in touch with you. I'll have a case manager put in to help you, but you need to talk to your neurologist. I went back to see the neurologist because I had spoken to him about the fact that some of my scores weren't very good. And his comment was, join the dots. <laughs> Hence the name of my group, Join the Dots for Dementia. And I didn't. I didn't join the dots at all. Why the heck should I? And when I went back and saw him and I said, I have dementia. And he said, well, yes, I thought you knew. I said, well, why the heck would I? I said, it's why I pay you is to tell me these things. And he said, well, I actually don't like to call it dementia. He said, I like to call it progressive cognitive deterioration that's non-recoverable. And I said, listen, Raymond, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck and quacks like one, it's a bloody duck. And I said, let's not pretty this over. You are telling me I have got the symptoms of dementia. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, he said the scores are pretty bad. You can't go back to work now because I'd had a, a second brain operation within three weeks. And I just sort of, my eyes popped and I got myself back to Port Macquarie and I spent a long time in Delisle. I had a heap of long service leave and annual leave and sick leave and I just stayed on that. And then he very kindly wrote to my uh, employers and uh, told them what was wrong and 
they just very kindly wrote to me and told me I didn't have a job anymore. Oh, um, gosh. Yes. That was a moment after 40-odd years of working for them. And uh, so my, fortunately, I was secure. I, I had my own home. I was okay. And we have what we call the disability pension out here, which I was able to get. And that allows me, allows me to live modestly, not lavishly, but modestly. And I had some savings. So I manage um, with my day-to-day stuff. I can't travel anymore. So I don't have many wants and needs. And I stick to home and after two years of being curled up on the couch in the fetal position, I decided to get up and get on with life and try and work out how I was going to manage the new me. I think aside from losing my job, the other great loss was I lost friends hand over fist overnight. They just vanished. Like, you would have thought I, they were afraid I was going to run down the street naked or something because they just shot through. And... Um, I had to start again and I had to find a new pathway in my life and some new purpose and some new direction. And that took a long time. It's still a developing thing. This COVID thing has shot it to pieces because all of the things I had that I was doing, the meetings I was attending, I was looking after the dementia garden at the hospital, I was doing a lot of stuff. I I was suddenly cut off from doing it. I'm still not back doing it, except by Zoom for the meetings. And so I'm back to being in this sort of isolated stage at the moment. But, you know, life is just, it's a new normal. It's a new normal. And fortunately, um, we have out here a thing called the National Disability um, Support uh, Scheme which provides uh, household support in the home, uh, a budget for it. And each year I get reviewed and and I get a budget that helps me over and above my pension to do things like I, I, uh, because I don't have control of my hands anymore with some of my, one of my medical problems, I get help with mowing and with gardening and I get help with cleaning and I can't, cook anymore so I get help with food preparations I get help with shopping anything I need done I have um, a case manager through Dementia Australia I have a support person who does things like books trips if I've got to go somewhere I've got lots of help I am extremely and eternally grateful to the government for developing this scheme it was developed under the Labor government and I will be forever grateful to the Prime Minister at the time Kevin Rudd for developing this scheme because it's it's a beauty it it is helpful and and we're lucky to have it we are in the U.S. we don't have anything comparable to that in fact people who are diagnosed especially young onset they uh, they have to fight to get you know, a disability income. Sometimes they're turned down three times, have to hire a lawyer to go through the process. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's disrespectful and demeaning that you have to scratch and beg 
um, to get some basic services. But then as far as the additional services you have, that's really, really rare. Um, so I've actually um, had that. Uh, I give this very poignant example. We had a, a young girl that I, I know from or knew from uh, down uh, Victoria Way. Uh, she has a well-publicised story of her diagnosis. Rebecca was 35 and six months pregnant when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's caused by the gene, um, the Alzheimer's gene. Oh. Now, they tested everybody else in her family. She was the only one. They tested her little girl when she was born. She didn't have it. But by the time, it was so aggressive, it just ravaged her brain. And from the six months of pregnancy to when uh, she had Amy, she didn't realise someday she'd had her and she died within 12 months of her being born. Her husband could not get her um, a pension initially because uh, our government kept saying, no, she doesn't have Alzheimer's. She's too young. She's too young. And like, come on. Um, and eventually, you know, after copious doctor's letters of support and all of that, but it was well by the time that she was in a nursing home, it was, it was an awful circumstance for them. But, yes, um, people, people get very surprised when they hear there's over 100 types of dementia, that six of them are children's dementias. And the youngest one I've ever known is a little girl who was two diagnosed with it and died at two and a half uh, of a thing called Newman-Picks disease. Well, you know, it, it happens. And uh, as uh, a community, it behoves us to become informed as government. It behoves them to become informed so that people do not suffer unnecessarily uh, because of something that is totally beyond their control. Totally. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Um, what was the most difficult part of getting diagnosed for you? Most difficult part? I think knowing the diagnosis. I'm a clinician. I, I am a nurse by trade. I, I trained back in 1977, a long time ago. And um, I had nursed... I, I ran a rehabilitation and stroke ward, and so I had dementia patients on my ward. I think sometimes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing because you overwhelm your brain with what's going to happen to you. And there, I would go through, as I said, the denial, but I went through raging anger. I really did, and trust me, I can get quite cantankerous when I put my mind to it. But it was that understanding of what the general progress was. And just to give you some uh, perspective, at the time I was diagnosed, there was a, a little group within uh, the uh, sort of support group formed where we'd go and we'd meet once a month uh, through Dementia Australia. And there were seven of us diagnosed at the time, which is now uh, five years ago. 
would you like to imagine how many of those people are still alive? They're all early onset dementias. Could be maybe half, not even. One, you? The last one died, John, my, my darling friend John, and Hazel always never minds me talking about him. He died at 51 in November, and John's dementia just basically burned through him within five years. He was diagnosed at 46, died at 51. His dementia came as a result of, um, uh, how, how do I describe it, a deliberate brain injury given to him as a child, shall I put it diplomatically speaking. And uh, that was when he was five and six. And the doctors were able to trace that very old brain injury back to say, this is what's caused your dementia. And it just sort of burned through his brain over five years as it burned through my other friends' brains over five years. And, and that, that loss of all of those friends in that period of time, that has been very confronting to me. It always is confronting. I sort of, uh, I, I never know how, how I'm going to feel about it from one day to another. As I said, I, I think I've got a very uneasy alliance with dementia. I, I tolerate it and it tolerates me. Yeah. Uh, mine is a different form because a lot of people... If I've had it said to me once, I've had it said to me a thousand times, you don't seem like someone who's got dementia. And after I gripped my teeth and the last time it was said to me, I snapped. And I said, well, you don't seem like someone who's stupid, but it goes to show we both can be wrong. And I just... It's a very difficult thing, but my type of dementia is the fact that I don't have any short-term memory and I will remember very little of this conversation with, unless I see it back again within about 10 minutes of me um, finishing because I'll have my support person and I'll say, how did it go with Laurie today? And I'll say, I've got no idea. And she will expect that because I've got no short-term memory. My planning skills are really, really poor. Uh, I just, you know, it's really frayed at the edge, my planning skills. I, I have to diary everything. I, I, unfortunately, as a former risk manager, I am military precision with everything I, I diary. And, and one of the things I've been able to get through my disability is, is I can get equipment and I have an Alexa and she um, tells me what to do. It's time to take your medicines. Uh, make sure the dogs are fed. Make sure the birds are fed. Clean their cages. I have a whole list of duties. And she tells me about those every day. Reminds me to do them. The morning duties and the afternoon duties. And that's just brilliant. Aside from playing music, which she often does for me early hours of the morning. Um, you know, but I don't have, at this stage, the cognitive issues. When they kick in and I lose insight, that's when I will really be in trouble. That's because 
I've got no short-term memory now. I will really be in trouble without my cognitive insight into my condition. I, I can recognise danger and I, I don't... On the days I'm not feeling well, I say, well, I won't go out today or I'll get somebody to come and get me today rather than doing anything that I shouldn't do. I'm still able to drive. I get assessed for that, so I'm still able to drive. But I can cognitively say to myself, well, no, I don't think I'll drive today. And I won't. Because some days you just, your brain flatlines. Uh, don't ask me why, but that's how I describe it. It flatlines. You know, you had mentioned using Alexa, and I was just reading an article today, um, and I had never heard of anybody doing this, and they use it as their short-term memory. So they'll say, I put my keys on the kitchen table. So when I ask later, where are my keys? Alexa knows where my keys are, <laughs> or if I've locked the door, um, so that they know. And I thought, that's brilliant. I haven't thought about the keys because I'm always losing that. Thank you for that tip. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. I just tried to call Sally, and she didn't answer, so remind me to try calling her again or something. Now, the interesting thing is I don't like the phone, mm -hmm. and a lot of people I know with dementia don't like using the phone. I don't like talking to a disembodied voice. I don't mind Zoom because I can see you so I can associate the voice. After a while, I feel like I'm lost in this void. I would have the smallest phone bill on record because I don't use it. I use SMS on my mobile, but I don't tend to use the phone. Um, very much at all. Well, I think that's common. I hear more and more people say, I didn't know that I read lips and that I was reading all the nonverbals and without it, it doesn't make sense to me. The other thing that I always like to mention to people because not a lot of people associate it is one of the, one of the earliest problems I found uh, is that my skin, uh, the pathways between my brain and my skin have changed and my skin can become incredibly itchy and just patches all over the place or a patch on my back or something like that and sometimes water can irritate it and when I talk to nursing staff and I say when you have that patient who you go to shower them and you say now come on Mrs Smith we're going to do a shower now and they go no 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 you need to understand that that, in, that feeling of water on their skin is just making their brain implode between their brain and their skin. And so I always suggest to them, get a handheld shower, start from the feet up and work up the legs. And so many nursing staff have told me they have changed their practice to do that and it's made such a difference with the patients because they didn't realise there was such an issue. And, like, uh, they will constantly... They will always be rousing on patients, you know, not rousing, but, you know, Mrs Smith, don't scratch your skin. It is something going on between the brain-skin pathway. Sometimes I will walk for an hour or two just to try and disrupt what I feel is going on between my head and my skin that I really want to rip it apart and it, it, it's something that a lot of people say oh gosh 
mum doesn't like to shower or mum's constantly picking at her skin, they'll feel like there's ants on it. Sometimes I feel like I've got sand under my skin and it drives me nuts. And I always like to talk about that one because not a lot of people recognise it. My GP didn't know about it until I told her. She said, oh, no one's ever mentioned it to me. I said, well, have you ever asked? And she said, now knows to ask. Well, you know what I found out? Because my mom had the same issue with showers. And so I asked um, Tipa Snow, who's a big international trainer. I love Tipa. I know. And she said, oh, Lori, she says, what most people don't know is that as we age, we lose our fat pads. And I said, well, my mom's a big lady. And she says it has nothing to do with weight. It just, our, our nerve endings in our, in our body change. And so when that shower comes on, it's brutal. It's this brute force, and they don't understand the water's coming on. Even when they hear it, it's just, what's going on? There's a new noise. You know, they're not connecting that. And then all of a sudden, there's this pounding. So she had suggested, you know, that we do the handheld shower and do a rain handheld shower so it was lighter, so it wasn't that hard force, and then it's starting at the feet. So when I went to her, she happened to be living in a nursing home, so when I went in, I, you know, I said, I want to donate handheld rain showers for all the bathrooms. And we had this whole conversation, and he just said, Lori, you have this strange timing he's like why do you want it so I explained it he says what else would you like in the bathrooms and he pulled out plans he says we're in the process of redoing all our bathrooms and I and so we talked about color changes we talked about piping and music we talked in about having heated towel bars and heated floors and aromatherapy And and he was he was just shocked He's like, oh, my gosh, all this makes so much sense. And I said, well, and then I said, the last thing I have, and I said, I don't know if you can accommodate this one, but teach your staff to sing their old songs when they're in the shower with them. Because it just brings, you know, music brings so much peace and and joy and stuff. And he just kind of laughed. I don't think they ever did that one. But it was just that point of you have to take in the whole environment and the physical body and then understand everyone's going to react different. Um, Even earlier when you were talking about losing, you know, so many of your friends in such a short period of time for early, early diagnosis, you know, my mom was like, well, she... She started showing symptoms in her mid-50s. She didn't get formally diagnosed for 10 years because they kept blowing it off to her hormones, even though my mom would say, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones. She knew. And then she lived a long time. She lived 30 years. And people kept saying, well, she can't have it. You don't live that long. And I'm like, they don't know enough about the disease yet. You know, everybody is a little bit different with this whole thing. And I truly believe my mom lived as long as she did to teach me so that I could teach others and make a difference in the world and try to shift our dementia care culture. I mean, I think she fought tooth and nail to just keep teaching me these beautiful life lessons that apply to all of life, not just dementia. And I always. I always am amused when I read in the papers or see on the news that they're getting close to a cure on dementia. I love that one. And then I say, well, they've only got another 101 types to go. 
Yep. Because what they need to understand is they're only looking at one specific type. And every one of them, like I tell people when you go to a doctor and he tells you, well, you know, mum's got dementia, your first question's got to be, well, what type? Well, don't, uh, and the number of patients that get, uh, or relatives that get said to them, don't worry about the type, just know they've got dementia. Well, no, that doesn't work because you need to know the type because you then need to say, well, okay, what part of the brain does that affect? And what does that part of the brain normally do? Yep. And then what, what symptoms will that cause that I need to watch with mum? And if he says, well, you know, you don't need to worry about that. What you need to worry about is changing your doctor. Because if you don't have a doctor who is prepared to accept that you need to know very specifically what's going on and, you know, that we think it's a type of vascular dementia, and mine's a mixed one now. I started out as hydrocephalus and it's migrated in that there's a vascular component in it now. You have to know, well, what does that do to you? What's going to be affected? I have, I often have TIAs, little, tiny little strokes going on in my brain because I have a, another odd condition that uh, called, um, oh, I forget, fibro, fibromuscular uh, uh, disease, which is a weakness of the arteries, right? So I've had a hemorrhage, I've had a stroke. I've had multiple TIAs <clears throat> and I can, I can just be walking along a street as has happened and I can fall over. Right? And I have a care watch, which is a phone as well. And I can press that care watch and get help because the first time it ever happened was before I got the care watch. I was sitting within about, I would say about five feet of people. My dogs were climbing all over me because they knew something was wrong. But not one person approached me in that 45 minutes to see if I was okay. Not one person. And it was in the boiling hot sun. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I was trying to think and I couldn't think and I couldn't work out where I had to go or what I had to do. And it took me a while, thank God, for my brain to kick in to get speed. And I eventually got myself home. The dogs knew the way. But no one asked me if I needed help. They were all sitting there chatting away nicely. But no one asked me if I needed help. And clearly I did. I just was staring into space. I just didn't know what I was doing. It, it is amazing how people can ignore things. You know, when they're uncomfortable, even when you got your diagnosis or didn't get your diagnosis from your doctor, and he's like, well, I kind of figured you knew, you know, well, use the words. It's not about how you feel about this. You know, this is, this is about being honest. And, and if you aren't educated in it, then let me know that. Let me know where to go so that I can, I can get matched up with a person who can support me, not somebody uh, kind of play a game around all this i think the reason he didn't tell me we worked together for probably 25 years and i think he didn't or he knew me for 25 years and i think the reason he didn't tell me was he didn't want to be the one to tell me i had dementia he was a friend he, but he told your work 
You know, uh, with, I would have choked him <laughs> if it was me. I mean, I would just didn't want to be the one to say it. And that's why he said, oh, I thought you would have joined the dots. And I said, well, why? That's what I pay you for. Yep. You know? Um, but look, it, yeah, it, it, it's been a strange and interesting journey. I, I have to say it's uh, some days are good and some days are bad. I always say that. I spend a lot of time in the garden. In fact, particularly with the COVID stuff going on, I've virtually lived in my garden. And uh, I, I, it's my comfort zone. I get out there and um, I try and keep myself at peace working in that area. I try to remember to wear my quick care watch because I've had a couple of U-Butte falls. So I've got Mount Kilimanjaro up my backyard. Um, <laughs> So I've had a couple of spectacular falls down it. Um, but no, I, I spend a lot of time gardening. I, I've got my dogs, Bonnie and Clive, um, Cavoodle and Pomeranium, if you're wondering. Um, I've got the birds, which are all hand-trained, and I've got... I love them. They can live for 25 years. I've had to make plans for them in my will so that somebody looks after my birds, you know, um, because they can live for 25 years. It's really important to do that sort of thing. And that's something that people need to know. They, they must get their guardianship documents right and never have just one person on as guardian. I, I had a friend who had just her father on for her mother who had dementia and dad had a big stroke. And the daughter had enormous problems getting to mum's finances because no one had access except dad who couldn't do it. And so I always say have two or three people, which I do, on power of attorney and guardianship, get that all sorted because there will come a point when the solicitor will say, mum's not in a position to be changing her will now. I, I constantly review aspects of my advanced medical directive, of my power of attorney, of my guardianship. I've put down where I want to live, you know, that I don't want to live outside the area of Port Macquarie. I've been very specific in my advanced care medical directive about how I want to be cared for at the end of life. Don't waste time doing damn tests on me if it's not going to be for any good reason, why? Just leave me alone. You yeah. know, look after me, care for me properly, ensure that I'm clean, ensure that uh, I'm given mouth care because right at the end I have been very specific to say no oral feeding, no gastric tubes, no NG tubes, none of those things whatsoever. Um, because I don't want it. I, I, if I can't care for myself, if I can't interact with my family and have them understand me and me understand them, then it's time to call it quits. I'm quite pragmatic about this. Mm -hmm. I, I've been independent all my life. I do not want to live in the circumstance where I can't advocate for me. And so, you know... When it's time to pull the plug, pull the plug. And I've had that conversation with my family. They know very well. So, you know, it's all, it, it's solid there because I wanted there to be no misunderstanding about um, 
<clears throat> whether I was, you know, cared for <clears throat> when I couldn't make sense of the world or it makes sense of me because it must be so incredibly frustrating to not be able to communicate and have yourself understood and understand what the other person is saying to be able to care for yourself i i, I cannot imagine anything worse and pain management is very important to reference in advanced medical directives that you are you are managed adequately, even at the expense that it may compromise your breathing. You rather quality of life over quantity of life. And I have uh, written, a, a, I researched my advanced care medical directive, didn't use the New South Wales Department of Health because it wasn't worth the paper it was written on, wrote my own, and I, I spelt it all out, what I wanted, to be done and not to be done. And I've, I've layered it up with a bit of legalese at the end that if they don't do it, my family reserves the right to take action. Yeah, I, I think that's so important too. And we have, uh, you know, society is one that pushes that off. Well, if I talk about it or I think about it, it's going to happen. And it's like, no, it's smart living. It's, you know, and it's like you've been in control of all of your life. Why would you not want to be in control and have a say about the end of your life? The uh, one thing I want to be, uh, I, I may not be in control towards the end of my life, but I will have set up the back processes that will direct you as to how I will be cared for towards the end of my life. I actually see it as the way of maintaining as much control as possible. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, one thing I want to talk about is, um, and this is kind of jumping back a little bit, but employers. What do employers need to know? I mean, when you said, you know, the doctor went and told your employer and then your employer called and said, hey, toodles, you're done. It's just like, I mean, that to me that was jaw-dropping. And, and I hear, not necessarily that the doctor tells them, but I hear that somehow they find out if it's through the grapevine or whatever, and then it's just like it's all over. There's not a conversation. There's, there's no information. But it's just they look at it as a liability, it seems like, to the organization. Of all the things that employers should manage better, and don't, it is the management of a medical retirement due to dementia. Now, there's a few things that should be considered. One, if they make the decision that there's absolutely no other work opportunity that they can give that person. And see, I felt, I had, uh, we have, re I don't know about you guys over there, but we have health restructures like their you know, let's change the flavour of the ice cream today, we'll have a health restructure. So we have yet another health restructure. And in my case, it added on a lot of roles to what I did. And the longest role I had was one called risk management, where I had to ensure that all our hospitals had risk registers, all our departments of all our hospitals had risk registers, uh, our breast screening units, all of that, yada, yada, yada. We, and look, I knew that like the back of my hand. 
I knew less well things that have been added on, like the accreditation work, the quality assurance work, because it hadn't stuck in my memory as well. I, I knew even less well than that the, the, the patient advocacy stuff that I was being involved with because it meant a lot of meetings with, with consumers, et cetera. And my memory, as I said to you, was short. I was pretty okay with the thing called the Legislative Compliance Register because I set uh, one up on a database. In fact, the New South Wales Department of Health were actually looking at it for a period of time. I was pretty au fait with computers in that respect. But uh, there were things, the one task I knew was risk. And I felt that if I had been left with that one task to do, I would have been okay, even if it had been part-time, I would have been okay. <clears throat> the fact that I was not given that opportunity, I found really difficult. And as health, I felt health should have known better because of all the industries that should know and understand the idea of compassion. It should be health, you would think. You would think so, I have been uh, educating because um, I, uh, the one thing I will say after a, a period of time, I used to try and bash on the door of our local hospital to come in and talk to the staff. And for a long time, they, they sort of kept me at bay, maybe because they knew that the moment they got me in the door, they couldn't shut me up, but they kept me at bay. And then last year, they wanted to set up a dementia-friendly committee so they invited me onto it and then they said oh do you mind doing a few talks to our staff and suddenly I'm doing talks to all of the departments and that's how the video came out of it it was recommended to New South Wales Health that hey this girl can talk underwater let her talk about dementia and educate her, our staff uh, which that was originally supposed to be. And I, I said to them, I would do the training, I would do the video, providing they allowed it to be uh, put up on YouTube so that anybody could see it. So we came up with Sarah's story, Living with Dementia, and it went up on, on YouTube. Um, what was the original question you asked me? This is just showing my dementia in it. Employers. They've become, every time now that I do a talk with them, I talk about the fact that, you know what, I was given a pretty raw deal by you guys. Um, it's important that you look at how you can support people in the future. And I think now they're starting to engage with it far more. And I said, the most important thing is if somebody's got a, a, a diagnosis of dementia and it is one whereby you've looked at all the options, you cannot keep those people on board, then make sure when you put them out the door on medical retirement that you offer them counselling, that you don't just out the door, ta-da, give them counselling because this is the hardest diagnosis to get your head around and to um, uh, work out what you're going to do. You, you've got to have um, 
you've got to have some support. So offer them counselling. So these are the sort of things that our HR are now looking at to see what we can do, certainly in our area here. And that's because, you know, you've got people like me beating the drum. I'm on the dementia-friendly committee for the, the Port Macquarie one, plus on the hospital one. We do training, regular training with the staff. I go along, I volunteer my time and go along and I train the staff. Every time they've got new staff, I go along and train them. Um, I'm doing talks next uh, Wednesday night to the Rotary people. It's all about education. It's informing them. The amount of people who have no idea there are 102 types of dementia in counting, that Alzheimer's has six classifications within it, that children get dementia. It's just, it, it's mind-blowing what people don't know. So I see my role now, and I think I've finally sort of nestled myself into it, is to educate, is to... And I sit on the National advisory committee for dementia australia is to advocate is to do the talks is to put myself out there and in doing the film i was putting myself out there because up under len if i did a piece for the paper it was always sarah it was never sarah ashton now it's well to hell with it it's sarah ashton it is what it is well i i love employers should have buy-in don't don't blast and will let your people go without supporting them that's just that is poor employment practice and you need to get your head around it and wake up for yourselves well, sorry you, one phrase that you use that i don't hear much here in the u.s that even just gives it a little more dignity that we don't have is a medical retirement people just look at it no you're fired you know i mean that's that's how it's viewed it's not even termed as a retirement and the other, the other thing I want to mention, and I, and, I, and I caution people with dementia to be careful with this because everybody's looking for a purpose. And I was, even though I wasn't diagnosed, but I was dealing with my mom, is the usability that organizations and companies think they have over you to give you purpose and not compensate you. And so one of the things that I see that's happening here a lot in the U.S. is that organizations have now figured out, boy, there's a lot of people like Sarah out there that really know this from the inside out. And we're going to have her speak and we're going to have her be on this committee and we're going to have her head up this and we're going to, and pretty soon they're burning the people out. And when people with dementia get to a kind of that burnt out, worn out space, it takes time to come back. I mean, many of them talk about, you know, I go and I speak, but it takes me two or three days to recoup from that too, you know, as time goes on. And and that is something I don't think um, organizations and companies understand, that the uh, that it is nice to be recognized and it's nice to be heard, but they need to know how much that takes out of you and what a commitment that is on your part to better the world. And I give them kudos for doing that, but I think there has to be more of a balance because I see that starting to get out of whack a little bit where I, I think it can, in some cases, be harming people 
because they're being pushed too far. And, and maybe you don't agree with that. And I'd love to hear yeah, you. No, no, no. I, I actually absolutely agree with it. But I suppose I have two breakdowns. I, I do this for my old employer because they've finally recognised that what I'm trying to advocate for makes sense. And they want to educate their staff. They want to educate their community, etc. So I'm happy to help out there. Service groups that are things like Lions and Rotary, which I'm talking to next week. Lions, I'm a member of, and, and I do a lot of work with them. I am, I suppose, their best representative on the subject of uh, dementia. Uh, I do that for Lions here. I, I'm happy to do, but I tell you what, if I had something like a bank approach me, and say, now, look, would you come along and talk at this conference? You could bet your bottom dollar that I'd be hitting them up for travel, accommodation, and some uh, play money. Thank you very much. And see, that's one of the things here in the U.S. that um, people are battling. You know, they're, they're donating their time to an organization, and then others want to kind of tap into their expertise. But then they say, well, we don't have the money. And I tell them, because I'm a professional speaker, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And you are just as knowledgeable as I am, and in some ways more. And they need to, they need to understand and value that. Now, again, that has to be weighed out that if, you know, if a person like here in the U.S. is getting some assistance, maybe they don't want that money because that's going to blow any assistance programs they're getting. But then they, those funds could be donated to an organization or something else. Um, or, or it could be devised to um, maybe make a brochure that's utilized. I mean, there's lots of different ways to approach that. And I'm not saying there's one way or another. I just think it's something that needs to seriously be looked at closer. Oh, no. and, and absolutely. And see, the whole dynamic in the US is different to Australia because I, I need to declare that I get a disability pension, which I understand is not really very much available in the US. <laughs> this is a pension that is enough to live modestly, modestly on. I, as I said, I, I'm insecure in my own property. I have no debts. I've got a little bit of savings, so I can live very modestly on that. I'm, I'm not really able to travel because of my medical conditions. So I'm here and I do get a pension. But if, and I can earn a certain amount, about $10,000 a year over and above that. But after that, they would hit that up, right? So I would always have to be careful of something like that. The fact that I also am on the national disability and I get home supports and I get the wonderful supports that I do of the home health that I do sort of makes me feel um, behoved to my community that I need to give back to them what I can. And I can give back to them by doing talks to Lions and to Rotary, et cetera, because they support me and they care for me. And I am fortunate that that is able to happen. Yep. And, and I love that because I'm in the balance. That's just paying it forward 
as I feel I need to do. And that's why when they approached me to do the film, I said, yeah, no problem, no worries. And, uh, and you know, if we, if we need to bring you anywhere, we'll pay for it. I said, no, you won't. You know, I'll tell you what you need to pay for. But elsewise, this is me just recognising that I'm already being greatly helped in my life. Yeah. And I'm not going to be seen to just sort of dig in for that little bit more. Um, private organisations, different ballgame. You know, they've got a whole different line of money that they work with, and I would think entirely differently. My skills at working um, are not that great that any private organisation is thinking, we must have Sarah to come talk to us. She'll just be fabulous. And it hasn't happened yet, Laurie. I am an ex-toastmaster, and that does probably show through a bit. Oh, for sure, for sure. And just with the positions that you've held and stuff, I mean, those those characters and those skill sets, they stay, they stay with you, you know. Um, and many people that I talk to with dementia talk about the more they're involved, the more they feel, you know, they're, they're sharing um, they really feel that that is fending off the disease, you know, because it's giving them purpose. And well, one, of, one of my, the things that I used to love that I can't do so much anymore is read. Because when I read anything, um, if it's a new story, I can't remember what I've just read. So I can, because I've read every Agatha Christie book about 15,000 times over. Uh, read it and get a partial enjoyment of the the pleasure of reading. But anything new is really difficult because I just can't remember the storyline. And that's been something that grates on me hugely because I was a two or a three book a week person in my heyday. I love to read. I can't read anymore. And, you know, not that I was a... a um, a grand cook in the scheme of things, but I didn't mind cooking. My mother did uh, fairly callously, I felt, buy me a tea towel that says we do three things here, take out microwave and something something else, which I thought was a bit unkind of her. Um, and she did put up a sign that says I only have a kitchen because it came with the house. <laughs> and there were little things like that which I thought, perhaps uh, said something of my cooking skills in her estimation. But um, I didn't mind cooking. I love to garden. It's my great passion. I love music. Uh, I love my animals and I love my birds. And at the moment with COVID, that's where I'm centred on. My world is centred on that. Yeah. Wonderful. I just so appreciate your sharing, um, your story, your honesty. Um, If you were to talk to somebody who was thinking, they're maybe worried they might have dementia or maybe they were recently diagnosed, what would you tell them? It's not easy. In the film, I I say, uh, I'm asked, a similar question. It's what would be your take-home message? And I always say, try not to be afraid. And it's probably the truth. 
I know it's hard and I know it's overwhelming and I know it's frightening, but it is important that you take a big breath and as if you've never swum before, dive into the pool of learning about your condition. I think it's most important you know, that's why I say if you ever have a doctor that says to you, oh, dear, you've just got dementia, don't you for any reason whatsoever you tell them, no, I need to know what type do you think I have? Or if you can't tell me, send me to someone who can tell me what type I've got. I want to know the part of the brain, what that part of the brain does, and now I want to know the symptoms. Because that helps the family, that helps you, that helps everything. And knowledge is empowering. And the more you understand of your condition, the more you feel in control. Do those wills, do those power of attorneys, do those guardianships. Take control of your life. It's the one thing I can tell people you must do when you get the diagnosis. Take control of your life. For a friend of mine, he, he lived with his partner, this friend John, actually, lived with his partner for 15 years and, and they got engaged when they got the diagnosis. But as I said, it progressed pretty quickly. They wanted to get married. Now, John absolutely wanted to marry Hazel, but he couldn't because he could not articulate anymore that he wanted to be married. And so he couldn't get married and that was a heartbreak to him and a heartbreak to Hazel and so those important life decisions if you've been putting it off grab it by both hands and do it whatever you've been thinking about doing get on with it don't muck about don't do what I did which was stick my head in the dirt for two years because I felt sorry for myself don't do that just say, well, you know what? I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to do, I'm going to give it a shot. Because I tell you what, we're only in here for one run. As they say, life's no dress rehearsal. It's play performance or nothing. So just give it a go because there's no second chance here. There's no going back and saying, well, I'd like to redo this. Yeah, give me a do over. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent, excellent advice for people. What about family and friends? What do they need to know when they hear? I think they are perhaps the worst managers of people in relation to telling people that they've got dementia. A lot of them don't like to tell people, particularly patients that have been with them for years. They don't like to be the one to drop the bomb. Well, you know what? That's your job. Get on with it. Put on, pull up your big girl panties and, and get on with it. It's what we need you to do. We need you to be honest. We need you to tell us. And if you don't know, and God forbid, if you don't know that there are 102 types of dementia and you're a doctor, change the doctor. Because they should know all of this information. They should know that there are six six children's dementias. They should know that Alzheimer's is now broken down into six. All of that they should know so that they can empower you. This is about you. And whatever they might say about this and family might say about it, you just have to remind it. 
not about you, it's about me, and it's about what needs to happen in my life. And I'm in control here for the time being. I'll put the papers in place for when you can be in control, but for the moment, I'm in control. Get it set out, get it organised, but get informed. It is important. I think for family and friends, I don't care if you know no one in your family that's got dementia. That is no excuse not to be informed about a condition that affects other people. And that that will, you know, what have we got in the world? Uh, I forget how many million people. We've got half a million people here in Australia with it. I reckon that's underestimated by about 200,000. But they're saying we're going to have, you know, one, two million in 2050. What are these numbers going to be like? We have to have communities and societies that says, you know what, as difficult as these conversations are, and I think it's got something to do with that whole issue of going back to the late 19th century where people who appeared mad ended up in insane asylums. They were demented. And I, I, God, I wish there were a different word. I suppose that's why my, my doctor came up with progressive cognitive deterioration that's non-recoverable. But that's just too big a mouthful for me to be spouting out every time. Um, it's, it's just important that we as a society and as a community make ourselves aware and understand what it is that's out there, what it is that affects old people, why they are the way they are. Not shy away from them. Engage them. You know, like my Lions group. Got one or two of us in the group that have got dementia. Engage with it. Not shy away from it as a diagnosis. Because, you know, what is it? One in three over the age of 80 have the symptoms of progressive cognitive deterioration. It's going to happen, potentially. Yeah. If you go into a room of uh, Rotarians, or most of them over the age of 60, well, I tell you, it's about one in four or one in five of you guys. So look around the room, please. Somebody's probably affected here, just not saying anything about it. Yeah. Or hasn't been diagnosed. Yeah, hasn't been diagnosed, but don't, don't. Don't disdain them. Don't run from them. I, you know, like the people who wiped me, I've had one or two of them approach me and I tell you what, I've pretty much given them the bum's rush. I've just sort of out. I am not interested in having a conversation with these people. You didn't want to know me when I was diagnosed. Why the hell would I want to know you now? I am quite open with my neighbours about my diagnosis. They're quite open in talking to me about it. A lot of them approach me and talk to me about different things. The daughters will approach me about their mum, you know. Can I just talk to you about mum, this has happened. And because they know, they've heard from mum, oh, Sarah's got dementia, you know. This is important. And and I can remember once that the most... Uh, loveliest feeling I had, I did a talk at a very small place here in, in Australia called Comboyne, really little town. 
and a lot of farming community, right? And I did this talk, pack room, and I prattled on as I, I usually do. At the end of it, a farmer and his wife came up and said to me, he said, I want you to know my wife's got dementia. Now I have it, she says in the corner. Yes, you have, dear, but that's all right. We're going to manage it now. Now, my father, had he been alive, would have been astounded because he would have said to you, look, farmers are closed-trapped people. They don't talk about anything. They don't have to. But here's this man telling you what was going on. He said, you've made me feel so much better. We'll be able to cope with this now. I'll be talking to the sons about it. I know what I've got to tell them. I'll get it sorted. I'll get our paperwork done. I'll do this. And he had a whole course of action planned. That to me was the most, that was the greatest gift I had for that day. Because that man, he wasn't afraid anymore. He knew he could deal with it. It's all right. I'm going to be able to cope with this. We're going to be fine. And that was important for them to know. Get out and advocate the hell out of it for your... If you, you've you got a family member with it, you've got to get out and advocate the hell to get them support where you can and get them help where you can or organise your community to help one another. Yeah. You know, if organise a little group that might mind, you know, I'll mind your mum this week if you mind my mum next week for this day and, and all of that as communities rally around one another this disease is just about as prevalent as you can get so you need to dig in and support your communities and as communities rise up around and just nurture this problem and say well how are we going to make this work yeah. how are we going to make it function because the best place for people with dementia in their homes not in nursing homes Look what's happened. We've had COVID ravage our nursing homes out here at the moment. It's just awful. And the greatest numbers of deaths in Victoria at the moment are in our nursing homes with COVID. But if they, and one just struck me as an example, the son had encouraged mum to go in with Parkinson's, give dad a break, got in there two days, hadn't even had a chance to visit her, shut down, locked down, everything, no one can get in. Mum gets COVID, ends up in hospital, never got to see her. Large Italian family, they are just broken at the fact they were not with their mother and grandmother to nurse this woman. If they had known, she never would have been there. She would have been at home. I would have been helping Dad to look after if I had known what was going to happen. So, you know, you've just... Look, we live in really uncertain times at the moment and COVID makes it more uncertain. So you have to rally around your communities and say, you know what, we're going to look after ourselves. We are going to be our own best managers. We're not going to leave it to anybody else. We're going to advocate as groups and really push the point um, as to how you get, how and when you get support. And I mean, the greatest thing, I know people will probably scream at me, but the best thing I think ever happened was Obamacare, because I've got friends of mine over there in the US that are on my support groups. 
that got onto a, 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 a healthcare finally because of their diagnosis of Chiari, like I've got, I've got a Chiari group called It's All In Our Heads. And they weren't able to get onto it until Obamacare came in. And I thought that was the greatest thing that ever happened in America. It was the most important thing to me to see that there was the opportunity that a lot more people than was at the time were suddenly able to get support. Children were able to be brought on to care that had medical conditions that couldn't be brought on. And that was so important for me to see happen. And I was just cheering from the sidelines that it did. It, it's important to have those supports. I, I mean, I've look, it, it's a big struggle for the US at the moment. And I admire you facing your, your challenges the way you do. You do an extraordinary job. But it's a battle. It's a battle. And I, I think I personally believe that dementia is here to teach us to create unity through community. I think we've gotten away from that. We've all kind of are doing our own little thing and, and everything's about me instead of we. And I think all that's coming back. I think it's being forced. I think even through all the political chaos around the world, it's, it's pulling communities together and saying, what are our priorities? to take care of one another and recognizing what other people's needs are in a way we, we have overlooked it for a very, very long time. If maybe COVID teaches us one thing aside from the catastrophic issues it's brought into many of our lives, it's perhaps that we need to start to pick up the hands of our neighbours who need their hands picked up and help them. And it's to say, well, you know, we know that uh, dementia happens. What are we doing about it in our community? How are we managing it as a community? What can we do to help our neighbours who are looking after mum and dad and trying to work? What can we do to help the community manage better? Can we set up day respite like we have day respite programs out here i don't know whether you have them in the us but we do have them out here and we uh people can send uh, a person who's got dementia to the day respite program to give the carer a break um, we have people who come in for a couple of hours a week to give the carer a break so they can go and do the shopping that sorts of things those types of things are really valuable and they're, they're nurturing as communities to do. This is what communities of, you know, our forefathers did. They, they got in and they helped one another. Yeah. This is what extended families did. They got in and they helped one another. You know, even with extended families, we've lost that, that sense of unity that tended to exist with you know, all of the relatives coming together. I, I remember with my my father and my mother's families, They their siblings were very close all their lives and they travelled between one another well into their 80s. And then when they couldn't travel, they were on the phone. You know, it was that I'm caring for you. I still love you. I still want you to know I love you. I still want you to know I'm here for you. Uh, that's very, very important. Yeah. 
I, I totally agree. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for all the work that you are doing, for your bravery and honesty of sharing your story with us. I think you you gave us so many insights, not only for families, but for professionals, for employers, for communities, just so well-rounded in terms of the information that you gave us. And um, I just um, honor you and in, in what you're doing and how you have stepped up and stepped in to make the world better. Well, look, I am so grateful for the opportunity um, to speak with you. I know it, it was me who reached out to you. I'd been seeing your podcast come through and I thought, oh, I just might splash out here and have a go and see if I can get on Laurie's program because um, I hope that the video might provide you with some insights into how I was dealing with it or not dealing with it. And uh, hopefully the chat we've had today, and I'm always happy to come and have a chat. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing, I'm doing one with our, one of our ABC programs here on Monday, actually. And what we're going to do is we've got Dementia Month in September in Australia. And Dementia Week is the final week of uh, September. So I'm, uh, we're telling them on Monday that I will come back and I will, they can have sent in their questions and I will come back and I will answer them. So that's what we're going to do with them. I do anything that, look, anything for the cause, Laurie, anytime you know that. I've been a long-time admirer of your wonderful work and I'm always always very happy to help you well great well thank you and you know the show you know when i when i changed careers i used to be in residential real estate and i worked with assisted livings and memory care and they were actually the ones that told me i needed to step into this space to give hope and um i had no idea that i would end up giving up my job and switching careers and, and doing the whole thing but from day one i've had two goals one is to raise all voices all around the world, because I think we can progress faster when we share our stories and our ideas. We don't always have to agree. Um, part of that is the, you know, by listening and learning from other people and opening up our minds to, to new ideas. And the other was to level off the playing field from the little guy to the big organizations who think they own the space. We all own the space and we all have value to bring. And the, the, the faster and the more comfortable we can have these just general conversations, I think the more progression we're going to make. We are so lucky to have your advocacy, Minnesota, isn't it? Yep. Am I right? Minnesota, you're a lucky lot <laughs> to have Laurie out there uh, advocating for you because it's an important voice. She does some great talks with people and... Uh, I just applaud your work. Well, thank you. And anyone listening, like I said, all voices are welcome. Just reach out to me at Lori at alzheimerspeaks.com or just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big contact me button there too. Yeah. I oh. should add, I have a, a group called Joining the Dots for Dementia that you can find on Facebook. There's a public page where we publish articles and there's a private group page, which is a support group for those with dementia and for carers and for advocates. 
we do that. Uh, as I said, the other group I have is those for, it's all in our heads for those with rare neurological conditions like mine. But always uh, happy uh, to have people come on, always willing to be supportive. It is a very nurturing environment there. We don't tolerate any bad behaviour. So you will always be uh, cherished and supported by our group on that page. Uh, but again, thank you, Laurie, for your time, your advocacy, and I do thank you for this opportunity today. Yeah, well, I was really looking forward to chatting with you, and you didn't disappoint, that's for sure. And we'll list Sarah's uh, contact information so you can reach out to her as well. And again, thank you, listeners. And make sure that you share this with others. This, is, this was a really informative conversation that I think everybody at every level needs to hear. And we will also uh, list the, um, the video Sarah was talking about uh, because that's a very powerful interview as well. And uh, you, you won't be disappointed by taking the time uh, to listen to, I think, either of these. So thank you all. And um, take care, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.